Yeah, let's stay in that same vein. There's there's aspects of, of those we love that have died that might not, um, you know, maybe we, we might not want to learn about, but it's inevitable mm-hmm. to do so. Stories like these serve as reminders of our loved ones who are far from perfect, mm-hmm. even when truth seems to ruin a childhood memory. Um, walk us through the process of discovering the imperfections of, of loved ones after they're gone. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hill, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Folden-Lord, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704 704- 406-3205 and visit gardner-web.edu. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Renee Leonard Kennedy. She's the author of a new book, After the Flowers Die. Renee, thank you for joining the conversation. Well, thank you, Andy, for having me. I, I look forward to where we go. So, um, you know, I always like to ask guests um, beyond the book, which we'll get to in a second. Um, what would you want people to know about you? I, well, one, I'm an older woman uh, wrestling with life uh, as everybody is. Um, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ after a very long, hard fight against him for decades and being a very staunch atheist. Um, and I have just had the best time being a Christian. Um, he stripped a, a world of things from me that I uh, I did not know was, you know, emotional baggage. Um, and among that was, you know, alcohol, uh, the things I was looking at and reading, um, the isolation that I was in, 
Um, and he brought me this wild North Carolinian community <laughs> coming from Miami, Florida and having lived a very uh, hedonistic life down there. Um, so it was, uh, I, I, I really, I was culture shock coming up here. I laughed when I heard that we were going to be in the Bible Belt. Um, but it has been the best thing. I haven't looked back in the sense of uh, regret for moving. Um, but I look back at my past knowing that I needed to live that past to come to the Lord. Um, and I deep, deeply desperately needed him. So. Yeah. I mean, that's a, yeah. you know, it's the interesting, uh, day and age in which we live in and, and part of the challenge that, um, I think a unique challenge that American Christians have is, um, that the intermingling of um, our political culture within our uh, church culture has really uh, challenged so much of where we are today, and um, which we, you know, we do associate oftentimes certain belief systems with certain, uh, but religious belief systems with certain political right. belief systems, which often obviously translates into certain news outlets and how that that challenges us. Um, and yeah. so it is, I think it's remarkable when when followers of Jesus, especially in America, are willing to start to unpack that and to unpack mm -hmm. the layers. And it helps us to understand that um, there are some moments of crossover, right? There are some mm -hmm. moments of application. But in many regards, um, if if we look to the Lord first, um, that's really what guides our understanding of the world. Um detached from um, oftentimes what we mindlessly allow others to shape about what we need to believe about others and political views and um, various ideologies. And so I think it's remarkable that, you know, as a person who's gone through a journey of, you know, uh, being a person who was not a person of faith to a person of faith and kind of wrestling with those things um, says a lot about kind of your drive and motivation behind um, your sense of belief and, and your journey with Christ. Um, You've got a um, a new book, After the Flowers mm -hmm. Died. This book is is about loss, grief, picking up the pieces afterwards. You wrote, we went from funeral to funeral, wondering what we were supposed to do after the flowers die, shell-shocked by paperwork and varying amounts of will, execution, inheritance. How do we handle this? Um, walk us through um, how this book was formed out of your own journey. Well, it... I've always been hyper aware of death since I was a, a small child. Um, and I, I kept thinking it started with my uh, second cousin that I dearly left. And I talked about, I talk about him a bit in the book. Um, and he was a, he was a young man and he, he paid attention to me. He saw me. Um, he didn't see me as a child. He just saw me as somebody to be, cherished and he would do his magic acts and uh, he played an accordion I mean you know it was so wonderfully wonderfully fabulously different that I've never seen that uh, but it even goes back down I think with children to the death of animals uh, my sister and I lost our beloved animal right in front of us her name was pretty um, and so I think we I was aware of death from a very very early age um, this translated into middle school when a high school um, football star who was a Christian 
uh, passed away from leukemia. Um, and it just went onward. Um, and so the idea of death, I, I think was one of the reasons I think I really got mad at God, why I walked away from God, besides a sense of I wanted to do whatever I wanted to do. But the idea that a good God would allow death, um, I was mad and I stayed mad for decades. And so when I became a Christian, um, I had, you know, there's sometimes we're, we're blessed with these little seasons of, you know, just like it's, it's a honeymoon phase. And my honeymoon phase went on for several years. And then the ball dropped with, you know, in my middle 50s, when my mother died, not unexpectedly, but after a 12 year battle. So every day was, is she going to make it? Is she not? Da, da. Um, and then my father did drop unexpectedly, but he was also um, you know, in his middle eighties. So you expect it, but you don't, because these are your loved ones you're talking about and they're gone. They're gone. Um, so this was when the year when a, a group of us just lost parent after parent after parent. And my sister and I looked at each other and we thought we would be better prepared for this. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, the legalness, it wasn't the financialness, uh, though some of the, all that does wrap up in there. It was the emotional, uh, you know, we were thinking we're 50 something. We can, you know, we know we expect this. This is supposed to happen. This is natural. Um, and we did not know what to do. We we felt like, you know, the eight-year-old child. I felt like that eight-year-old child again behind my parents' old ozone-ish TV. And I, I could smell the whatever, whatever those TVs were made of at that time, um, just with fear. And I had no idea what to do. And so we realized we could just do the next best thing. And that was to walk through it. So as a result of that, um, this is where this book came from. It came with stories. It came, and then all of a sudden, all these people are pouring out their stories. Um, and, and they, they gratefully, graciously let me share some of them, some of them are personal stories. Um, but I wanted it even further. I wanted hints of what to do. Um, not that I'm a trained person like you and your cognitive psychology, but just little tidbits that I picked up along the way, you know, and so that's, that's where it came from. So um, let's talk about legacy, the, the process of burying mm -hmm. family members as a process of receiving other people's stories and experience with uh, that individual um, often extends beyond you and into loved ones. I, I recall standing in the receiving line of all four of my grandparents' funerals and being mm -hmm. told all these stories about my loved one that uh, loved ones that I never heard. Um, mm -hmm. How does that experience of, of death reshape the legacy of those we love? And why is it a necessary part of the a grieving process to kind of um, hear these stories from others? It is necessary, I think, because we really get to know our grandparents, our parents as humans. Um, and and in where I was at the time, you know, I had made peace with my parents after years of being the rebellious child, the wild child, the unexpected one. Um, so hearing the stories of how beloved they were by other people, um, I was able, 
you know, by God's grace to have reconnected with my father three years before he passed. And I mean, uh, we were always in connection. It just, it, there was a heartfelt um, connection that happened. Um, so you hear these stories of people talking about how great your parents are and you have this dichotomy going on. And I think that's what you speak of is there's this dichotomy because you go, okay, I know this story and I know this story and I know this story. And um, so I, you know, at this point, I think you realize, and, or maybe it's just my age. I just realized there's a graciousness that goes on when you hear these stories, because deep down inside, we know, we know a different side of our parents, our grandparents, or we've heard stories about them. Um, but then you hear other people's and it's more appearance oriented, but still they're loved. And I think we learn a certain amount of grace um, in that is like, they are both those people, much like we are, you know, I'm that, that woman who's been saved from a world of crazy into, you know, the kingdom of God. Um, so I think there is a graciousness that goes on that um, rather binds our legacy forward, where we can tell the story as honest as we possibly can, you know, uh, you know, all that hurts habits and hangups, but we can also say, but this is how they walked forward, or this is what's going on. And you look, you know, I don't know about you, Andy, but you look back decades of having your grandparents and your great grandparents. And just as we are, as parents, we are doing the best we possibly can. And I look back at what they were going through culturally, not even culturally, but just historically. Um, my grandparents and my mom and my dad walked through uh, countless wars, you know, two depressions, um, you know, all these other things that were going on at the time. They walked through the sexual re revolution, which I walked through. Um, all these other things were going on, but that's part of the history. And that's part of the beauty. And you almost shake hands with it. I think it, there's a goodness in it um, that you meet it and you greet it and you go, okay, this is the story. And to paint it all good is not true. To paint it all bad is not true. There is, there's a whole story here. And I think it causes us to dig deeper into the greatness of the people who lived, if that makes sense. We can't go any further without telling about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative, the Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. Yeah, let's stay in that same vein. There's, there's aspects of, of those we love that have died that might not, um, you know, maybe we, we might not want to learn about, but it's inevitable mm -hmm. to do so. You wrote, of course, no parent or person lives a spotless life. Most inheritances 
uh, include both good and bad memories. Stories like these serve as reminders of our loved ones who are far from perfect, mm -hmm. even when truth seems to ruin a childhood memory. Um, walk mm -hmm. us through the process of discovering the imperfections of, of loved ones after they're gone. So I I just remember with my, I believe it was my mother. And after, there's a weird thing that happens with the last of your parents um, dying is you become the last generation. And that is a very heavy, weighty moment um, that you realize you're it and your cousins were it. Um, you've become them. And so we would sit together, uh, a group of us sat together after my mom's uh, funeral. And it was all quiet. You know, people had left the house. And we started uncovering and people started telling all these stories that were going on. And I, you know, I, I thought I knew a, a lot about my, my family history because I really worked through that because it helped me work through my addiction issues and um, my sin issues. Um, but it's, it's interesting because everybody had a little piece of it and there were different pieces and um, because of ages, um, you know, my brother and my oldest cousin had certain pieces. I had certain pieces and the youngest did not have those pieces because uh, they just never came up. So we were all learning. And how do you reconcile that? I think, it, it, again, it is one of those moments you just look back on your own life um, and how you lived it um, and the differences that came up, the stories that you walked through. Um, and realize these are your stories that are going to be passed down. Um, and I don't think they're shameful things in the sense of, yes, they may be simple things, but they're not shameful things to discuss and shameful things to bring up in the light of redemption. Um, so that's, that is pretty much where I have learned to take this, is that these stories are good. These are part of the family. These make this family real and true and not some sort of stick figure that we all think of. Um, and, and then you pass these on or you don't. Um, and, and they do become legacy, but in the end, Andy, I don't know about you, but it seems to me family history lasts about three generations. And then, I mean, I, I cannot tell you one good story of Alfreda, Pocahontas, Ramey, my great, great grandmother. Uh, except for her name. Her parents named her Alfreda Pocahontas Ramey. And I can tell you about the Ramey family who turned out to be a family of preachers and great um, people of faith. Um, I loved them. I knew them as a child. And Uncle Bill, the great, my great Uncle Bill would come play with us and, you know, hold it, you know, roll us around on his back and piggyback us and do all the wonderful things kids love. Um, but he was a, he was a strong man of faith. So I, the good news in knowing all that is that when I walked away from the faith, I knew I'm, I was walking away from that Ramey family. I knew I was walking towards my own story of whatever I wanted to do called rebellion. And that when I came back, I realized a large part of it was I, somewhere down the line, it would not surprise me, um, those Ramies were praying for this generation and the generations after me. Um, so that, that is how I go forward. And 
I, I think it again is a connection point for us to move forward. Um, however, there are heinous. I, I talk about one heinous, um, you know, with sexual abuse. There are heinous memories that we have, and those have to be treated very, very gently and carefully. And they usually don't come out. I mean, they don't. I just learned a new thing about a particular situation in my family, and it is a 90-year-old secret. And I was stunned. Um, and you know, I just had to look at that and hold it and take it to the Lord and say, I had no idea. And and but it does it does cause you to look back on that person's life and go, Oh my goodness. And you know, grace abounds at that point. <laughs> of course, um anyone's ever dealt um with the last will and testament, um, let's just say uh, challenges arise uh, with family. You wrote, uh, taking recourse is a tricky matter for those of us who don't like to stir the pot. Challenging yeah. and confronting family members who serve as executors is disheartening. Um, yeah. As these kinds of situations almost seem in inevitable, um, what did you learn about the experience that might be helpful for others and how might... Um, how might you um, help guide others as they maybe consider, um, you know, the unfortunate aspect of, of dealing with death? These, that is a tough one. Um, executors, the people in control, working with siblings, working um, together and moving forward. It is a tough one. Um, I, I think with, the executor thing, because I just, someone asked me a question about that recently. Um, and I said, you know, the point blank, the one line I didn't write in the book, the editor put in there, the executor must uh, must do his duty or his or her duty. Um, and the reason is I realized my editor had gone through some times with uh, their own personal life in an estate uh, and it wasn't performed. So what I would say is, one, as parents, choose your executors wisely. And then two, as the other, the person on the other side, I, I you know, I tell that story in relationship to a, a boat that was left in a yard and left, you know, they, it, it's a whole story that I, I just love that story. Um, but the thing is not doing anything about it doesn't help and and i think that's when you 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 confront that person very gently um or not even very gently you just confront that person not angrily and you say okay this is what is in the will this needs to be finished and completed and if that doesn't happen that's when you do get you get another family member to come up, you can do that, um, which creates this whole dichotomy of sides, which, you know, sibling sides, but it still needs to be done. And I think you need to make it very, very clear to that person that this is not something about you. Um, this is not something about them. This is something that's in the paper. And if you pretty much shove it back on what the will says, you just simply say, this has to be completed. Um, now the human aspect of that is 
uh, it can cause all sorts of drama. And but at the same time, in the end, it has to be completed. Uh, I I have experienced uh, this, and in a large amount, I you give grace where grace is needed, but in the end, there has to be a re, a a course that you set, the executor sets that you set is one underneath that, your name in that will that needs to be completed. And you're allowed to, you know, go to that person and say, this must be done. Um, I think sometimes we don't give our permission ourselves permission to do that because we feel um, we're going to break up the race relationship or we're going to harm somebody. Um, but at the same time, it needs to be done because if you think about it, this is the person, the person has stated what they want to have happen. It needs to happen. And it just comes down to that. And you don't have to explain it away. You just simply say it needs to happen. Um, unfortunately, it does get legally entangled often. And then at that point, a lot of grace needs to go on. But sometimes you have to do legal matters. That's just the that's just a sad fact. We see it in the papers. We see it all the time. So, so kind of wrapped in this mm -hmm. difficult package of uh, dealing with the unfortunate aspects of death. There also comes the emotional side, which you know, grief mm -hmm. is a, a precarious beast. Um, yes. What are what were some of the surprising ways it showed itself as you went through um, weeks and months after loss? I, Andy, um, I became real silent. Um, and for somebody who can talk to a wall, that is a very weird thing. Um, so silence uh, rather ruled me uh, and reigned in me. And I learned a difference. I thought it was silence, but I think it was more isolation. And there's a difference between isolation and silence. Um, I, I did not know what to do. And I think the surprising thing was, here I am in my middle 50s or late, late 50s. And, you know, I thought I would be better prepared as I spoke of. But I also thought I'd be more emotionally, spiritually ready. Um, and I wasn't. I, I think the deal is death is a separation. And I mean, that, I mean, that it just brings home again, why Christ so loved us that he walked to the cross so that we would not be separated for eternity from him. Um, it, it, it is, it is cruel. It is mean. It is never timely. No one ever has time for it. Um, it is not what we ask for. Um, but at the same time, uh, I realized in God's great grace, uh, this is this was kind of mind blowing to me um, that without death, there's no way that I can go to him and be without sin. Um, so the the one positive about death is I will be separated from sin because I'm a believer in Christ Jesus for eternity. And that is a big hallelujah in my book. Um, it also propels me to pray for people, the lost, um, for family members that I love dearly for and I, I just, I love, it's very rarely that I come across somebody I don't love. I just love people. So, you know, I don't want anybody to be lost. So this just shows me, again, the power of what Christ did. Um, 
the other things I think I learned was um, it's a lot of stuff, Andy. It's a lot of stuff. I was just um, with my sister and we were wrapping up the rest of my my mother and father's things. And we're talking, this has been year, this is year, we're almost, yeah, year five. And and what was interesting about our family is like we needed a push. Our the sibling group of my parents needed a push to do something about this because none of us wanted to touch it. I think all of us wanted to just live in this little world where we we do our lives and we don't think about all this. And it, by saying that, I say think about the memories that are behind it. Um. So I was with my sister. And I even wrote about this in the book and I realized my same pattern hadn't changed. She She's looking at every little piece of photograph and I'm looking at the big scope of things, um, of rooms of you know, papers and files and pictures um, and silver and golf clubs um, and you know, stray pieces of furniture. Um, and I'm going, how do we, what do we do about this? And I want to rush through and my sister is meticulous and she slows down and she catches the beautiful things. She, she catches the photographs um, that we wouldn't want to miss. Um, so she alerted me to that. Um, and I started, I, I finally just said to her, Robin, look at the big picture. You only have four hours, shove all the pictures in a bag and take it home. Now I have all this stuff at home. Um, so I, let alone my own stuff, I need to go through my parents' stuff because they are valuable parts of my history. I would just love for my children and my nephews and my nieces to see uh, and my cousins. Um, so it's just overwhelming. I think the thing what I learned the most after it was reiterated, the strip, is, oh, dear Lord, please help me clean my house now. You know, uh, I'm in Leviticus. Let's just get all that unleavened bread out, you know, or and or it was 11. I always get it mixed up, whichever bread it was. Um, because I don't want to leave that to my children. I want to leave as little, uh, I don't know. And I'm not going to say it's junk, but just knickknacks. And I, I just, I want them, I'd rather have them, let them have them now. And I want to figure out a way to handle all this. And I think another thing I learned, which is really, really important, is we no longer are just leaving paperwork. We are leaving a digital history. Um, and this is shocking. This is shocking because my generation, thank you, dear Lord, we did not have anything but pictures, which can be thrown away. Um, the digital history is on here as long as the internet's still running. Um, and I think this is something to be very, very cautious of. Um, I mean, we've all alerted our children to this. We've all grown up in that uh, since MySpace, if you remember that. Um, but now, now we need to go through our things and say, okay, is this something I want my children to find? You know, um, and I think it's really important. I think it's madly important <laughs> that we do that. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. 
We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we're here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. So, you know, one of the uh, difficult aspects of of grief is oftentimes it brings us to uh, challenging places in which we revisit um, you know, things that we might have conquered in the past. In the book, you talk about addiction. Um, I wonder if you'll walk us through kind of that aspect of the grief journey and, yeah. and what you learned about yourself uh, and, and grief in the process. Well, I when I came to the Lord, and I'm statistically impossible according to all the 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 research, but I came to the Lord late um, after being raised in the church and walking away um, when I was 39. Um, and the Lord did a precious thing by stripping me through, starting stripping out all the things that um, were not, were just, uh, to me, that it was like he worked on the outside in. He took all the physical things away that I, that did not benefit my life with him, did not imitate Christ. So alcohol, I begged for that for two years that he would take it away. And one morning I woke up um, and it was, it was another touch moment on my shoulder. It says, Renee, you don't need, you're, you're done. You can stop now. And so I stopped drinking, which was just beautiful. Um, I never had the desire to drink, but maybe a couple of times, and I can't even recall many of them. But what I do recall is I did in grief have one encounter uh, where it was overwhelming. It was such a temptation. And I was in a hotel room and this hotel room had a, and I tell a story in the book, had a, you know, a nice bougie bottle of wine there for, you know, sell for X amount of dollars. Um, so I, I'm pretty sure I said it outside my room and I called my, I did what I was to. I called my friend. I, I talked to her about it. Um, and so the deal is, is to respect, particularly with addictions, which are many in different ways. Um, there are the physical addictions. Uh, there's also the emotional addictions of worry um, and anxiety. Uh, you know, those are kind of the inside things that I think the Lord is still working on me on because I can go to those on a heartbeat. Um, but I, I, so I put this bottle of wine out, called, and I just prayed for the Lord to release me of this. And he did. He's really faithful that way. 
but I just learned last weekend as I was listening to a man who came to our church to talk to us about um, all the gender uh, issues and educate us on how to love people well. Um, and so that, you know, so we can love them well and let them know that, that we're here for them. Um, but he talked about that. He talked about even the addictions such as mine as was alcohol. He said, it's not, uh, it's usually not immediately taken away. So I was, I was stunned. I thought God did that to everybody, but sometimes there are struggles. They have to fight. You have to fight, you know, moment to moment. Um, and, and I, I think to recognize that, um, is the good training that you do in the beginning when it, when you stop your addiction and you get into AA or you do celebrate recovery, these things are really helpful to me because they give you tools. They give you practices that become ingrained in you. I mean, of course the Bible does as well. Um, you know, resist the enemy and, and he will flee from you. Um, and they, but they also explain that AA and celebrate recovery gives you some more tools on how to do that. So I think all the preparation you do comes into play. I think what was shocking to me is the development of a, of a new addiction, and which is, I think, probably one of the more dangerous times with grief is it's so easy to give into a new addiction. Um, as, as I said, I mentioned isolation over, it wasn't, it wasn't a beautiful time. It was just isolation. I, I couldn't relate. I couldn't talk. I couldn't figure out. I could barely, I couldn't even read. I could read one line in my Bible. Um, but how to do that? Um, shopping addictions, I talk about that. They're eating addictions. All these things, anything could pop up at any moment. And you need, just to be aware of it, I think is helpful. Um, but sometimes you have to live it and you have to live through it and you have to wake up on the other side and the Lord is gracious. And he says, okay, sweetie, this is what's going on. Um, and, and you have good friends. That's what the beauty of being a community. Um, I had friends who came over and got me out of my isolation and there was no ifs, ands, or buts. If they were going to come, they said, we're coming over, we're bringing lunch. Um, and we, we just, sat around the table and gathered around the table and talked and you know I, I i was able to express some of my things but it was just being a community so I, I think these are the things that we have to be careful for and watch out for but also realize that god is going to meet us there where we're at and shame is a big thing that comes along with these and guilt um there are a lot of people I hear about lately, um, particularly women of my age that, you know, either get divorced or a spouse dies and they immediately think, okay, party time, even as Christians, particularly as Christians, I've heard it spoken as Christians. Um, and they go, let's, let's just do whatever I want to do. Well, no, that's not what we're called to do. And actually, it's not freedom. I think if we could just realize these are not, this is not freedom. Um, this is not joy. These are not the fruits of the spirit or not filled by these things uh, up in us. So I think it's a, just awareness. And I, I don't want to say a be careful attitude, but maybe it is, you know, oh, yeah. to treat yourself and to treat yourself gracefully and with grace 
but also speak, speak to somebody. If you're really struggling, speak to somebody. How do you imagine this book being used by churches? Well, I think the, what I've overheard the most is that it, when I wrote the book, Andy, I really wrote it in a wild moment of just unleashing my grief and trying to figure it all out. Um, and I didn't even really particularly pray that it would be helpful. I just knew it was helping me at the moment. So I, I don't want to say it's a selfish book. Uh, it was the hardest thing I've ever written. It, it, and I mean, I have a sort I do have a mild sarcastic tone, um, and certain things that I like, I love laughter, but this one was really, really tough. So, but I do interject the laughter part. There's, there's just some things that are just funny. Um, but I think what I see people say is that this reaches this, this has helped them. And which I never, again, in my moment, white, white hot moment of writing, I didn't say, dear Lord, please make this helpful. It wasn't until after I wrote it and I realized, you know, the publisher was indeed going to publish it. I was like, oh Lord you know, what have I done? What have I written? What's it for? And, um, you know, the publisher comes back and says, Renee, it's just encouragement. It's help. It's help. And so that is what I, I hope the pastors understand is I wrote it very, particularly for a general market, um, that it, it doesn't hide my faith but it doesn't start with a typical scripture body and prayer. And I did that specifically because there are so many loved ones out there um, that we have in churches and there are plenty of people in our pews who are not Christians yet. And they at that moment want to hear stories or can barely read a story and the first thing they don't want right then is to be reminded of how far they are from god even though they are and i know that sounds harsh but it's true um because i know that's how i felt like you know as an atheist hand me something that started with the scripture and i would not read it so the nice thing about using um you know reading the bible over and over is you can use biblical principles you just don't even have to cite them um, you know, Jesus never cited himself except for the temptation. Um, so I, I, I think that is, and I may be wrong about that. I'll let your pastors correct me. So I think that's what it is for. It is to help a general market as well as a Christian market. It's something that the pastors could take to a house, but don't expect someone to read right away because the last thing most of us need when someone has, you know, died is a, a casserole in a book. Um, but I would definitely give it to them as a, uh, a gift down the road or as, you know, where we, we do need to step it up as a church. A lot of friends have been giving it to friends. That's what I hear. Friends, people I don't know will give it to the, I, I'm buying this for so-and-so. So I, I think that is the thing is, we rise up as the church because the pastors, okay, I do want to rant right here. Um, pastors are great. 
they work so very, very hard. I think we as the body of Christ, when people ask me, how are we doing as a church in grief? I hear how are the pastors doing as the, with grief in the church? I don't think it's their sole responsibility. Um, and it isn't because we are the body of Christ. We come along to these people. Believers are not. And we come and minister to their hearts. And we don't drop them, you know, and after one week of sending them casseroles and flowers and a, a, a gift box or something. Um, but we pursue them. We pursue them. Um, but we also give them space. Um, and I think we realize, I think we put too much pressure on our pastors and our pastors have let themselves have too much pressure put on them um, where the body needs to be utilized. It And the body is at fault for doing this, is that we sit back and say, oh, that's his job. That's the grief care. You know, that's the whatever, the counseling pastor's job. And no, it isn't. It is our it is our great love to minister to other members of our body and, and outward. And so that's, that's my hope is that pastors can pick it up. They can give it to their churches, their church members and say, now you go out and imitate Christ, love, love on people who are lost and losing and have lost. Um, and I think that's, that's the way it should go. All things. Our guest is Renee Leonard Kennedy. The book is After the Flowers Die. You can stay connected with her by visiting ReneeLeonardKennedy.com. Renee, it's been a joy talking with you. Thank you for challenging us to embrace a legacy of love as we deal with the inevitability of losing those we love. Andy, I really do appreciate what you're doing. I really love your podcast. This is worth putting off the podcast interview for 30 more seconds to hear about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV updated edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, A Model Ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.